Welcome to the weekly podcast of Upper Room Christian Fellowship in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for listening. If you want, turn to Luke chapter 2 because we will look at some of those verses. Growing up in Southern California, Christmas was always kind of something that was unique, I guess, to the rest of the country because my son would always ask me, so let me get this straight, you would get a bicycle and you could actually ride it on Christmas Day? Yeah, because usually it would be about 60 to 70 degrees outside. Christmas was a time that you would, everybody would get out there and play with their toys and all the kids would be on the block and we lived in this cul-de-sac. And Christmas was always kind of a special time for our family because it was, you know, we were a family of four boys and um, I'm sure the Plettners understand this, is that boys tend to have a tendency to fight a lot. They just do. It's just what boys do. Not necessarily always because we played a lot together too and maybe that's why we fought a lot too. But during the Christmas time it was funny because we, basically, we were so excited about Christmas we got along very well. But, you know, we were a family with not a lot of means, so, you know, it wasn't like, you know, we got all these great things. Like I said, I got a bicycle one time, but the bicycle I got was used. And that was just, you know, our family. But to me, it was a bike, and it was great. Or I'd get a, a coat or something, too, that, you know, typically a kid would just go, oh, a coat, great, you know. Um, so it wasn't like it was like this extraordinary expenditure of gifts and stuff, but it was still just a, a neat time. It was a build-up. Because people would be talking about what they got each other, and we would get each other really $5 gifts, I think, at the time. Nothing really elaborate. Maybe it was a couple bucks. I don't even remember. But the thing is, is that Christmas was always something that was mysterious and wonderful. It was just a time, it was a mystery in some ways, because people really got excited. It seemed like there was just a, a spirit in the air. But, saying that too, there was so much commercialism in it. In fact, so you know, C.S. Lewis was had written, writing a letter in the 50s, early 50s, was complaining about how commercialized Christmas has become in the 50s. What happens is, is that we, we lose sight of something because, again, the mystery, the wonder, we say it's this fat guy in red clothes and how he goes off and... And, and gives gifts out. I was reading a poem. I wish I remember all of it, but one of the lines in it was kind of funny because Santa, before he got on his sleigh, he got on his knees and started praying. <laughs> and he was praying. He says, Dear God, you know I'm jumping in this sleigh, but you know also that reindeer really can't fly. So please help this thing get up in the air. <laughs> again, it, the reality is, is that it's, it's again, a, a, a little cute story but if you can, it shadows the really the mystery and the wonder of Christmas. I, I, I have to tell you that people are always arguing about what's more important, Christmas or Easter. Well, I'm here to tell you that they're both equally important. Because without Christmas, there can't be an Easter. Without Easter, there can't be Christmas. Christmas is something that is a wonder and a mystery. In fact, it's powerful. And if you will, because of my mind, somebody texted me something <clears throat> the other day. 
And what they text was a contrast. And then that contrast made my mind think. And then I started looking at all the contrasts and the similarities on Christmas. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this to your attention is because sometimes we lose fact of, lose the truth of a fact. And the truth of the fact is, is that, see, we think that creativity, we think that uh, the liberal arts, if you will, is man-made. That, you know, somebody that is able to perform or be able to sing or be able to uh, paint a picture or write a poem, that this is an, a human thing, and it's not. See, God is the artist, God is the perfect artist. God is the perfect author. And see, in his word, if you will, and it's why a reason I love studying it and I love teaching it, is because it's so fascinating to me the detail that God has in writing his book. And also, if you will, just the, the depth of it. And if you will, if you allow me to, we're going to go through 14 of these things that are contrast or similarities just in the Christmas story. And we'll do it briefly. But I, I want all of us to see how this great author, this great God, this great God that is personal, that wants to touch you and touch me, that wants to bring the mystery of what it means truly about the incarnation, Christmas, so the mystery and the wonder, uh, like I was sharing before, would again arise in your hearts. Because I have to share something with you too. As I've gotten older, uh, Christmas on the earthly plane has lost its mystery. It's, it, to me, it's, uh, it's as an example, I, I did something that I was kind of still wondering why I would even think of doing this. Because I know better than this. Because see, I stay away from stores during this time because to me it's madhouse. Some people enjoy it. Me, I don't. But I had some time yesterday afternoon. I thought, you know what? I just got a few things to get. I'll just run in, run out. I'm just getting gift cards. How hard can that be? Well, I first drive to the mall up north, and it's packed. And so I just kept driving. I'm not going to stop there. I know. I'll go down south. Surely it won't be so busy. I go to a store. Actually, it was Marshall's. I walk into Marshall's. And the line is clear across the store. I'm going, I ain't doing this. I get in my truck. I drive home. Really, I had two other places I could have tried to stop at. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I wasted an hour of driving around. Why? Because everybody getting gifts, shopping. To me, again, during this time of year, it's maddening to go into a store. But something does Captivate me. It's the mystery and the wonder of our God. So if you will, come along with me. and Just look at the mystery and the wonder of this author and see how he puts this throughout his scripture. The truth that we come to worship, if you will. But let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We just pray that you, Lord, would just guide and direct us you are the author, Lord, and the finisher of our faith. We just pray that you just bless this time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to take note of is this. See, Satan used a particular person to make man fall. It wasn't Adam. It was Eve. Why Eve? Venture to guess that Eve was spiritually sensitive. 
And she wanted more. And maybe it was innocent. Maybe it was just she wanted more of God. And she didn't fully understand it. But see, God knew something even before that. What was it? That God would use a woman to save humanity. And Luke, we find this in chapter 1, verses 46 through 48. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. See, God knew even at that time what was going to happen, and God knew what he was going to do even before it happened. We'll talk more about that, a woman's role in this. But then again, just take note that Satan used a woman for the fall of humanity. God used a woman to save humanity. The second thing I want you to take note of is Adam himself. I don't know if you know this or not, but Adam is called the son of God. Did you know that? It's in the genealogy of Luke. It says this, that Seth begot Adam, actually, that Seth, the son of Adam, then Adam, the son of God. Did you know that? He came from God. Now, and knowing that too, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it said, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. It was the work of the Spirit that brought Adam to life, and he became a son of God. Now, not in the deity form that we would think of, no, but that God made Adam and breathed into him and gave him life. Well, I want you to know that the second son of God, the second Adam, the real son of God, he also came by the Spirit. And the angel answered and said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So Adam, again, who God created from the dust of the earth and breathed His Spirit into him, became life. And then the Son of God, the Incarnate One, also overshadowed Mary. And He is the Son of God. The third thing I want you to take notice of is that Jesus' earthly father had little means he was just a carpenter, a poor man, where his heavenly Father owns everything. In Psalm 89, 11, it says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world in all its fullness, you founded them. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 2, if you will, And it came to pass, verse 1, in those days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and all the world should be registered the census first took place and Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now Caesar decreed the world to be taxed. It would look like this was the king. The king was saying, all the world shall be taxed. But if you will, it was the Lord that decreed the world would be saved or redeemed. Where the king was going to tax the world, God was going to redeem the world through Christ. Where man moves, God is always a step ahead. His plan is always being fulfilled. Next thing I want you to take note of is this. 
So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, to be his betrothed wife. Now, reading that, you think, well, that's interesting. Here the decree is he wants a census. And the census is to tax the humanity, the Roman Empire. But the reality is there was something going on behind that. See, there was a prophecy that was spoken where man writes his words and says to be registered. God wrote his word and said, no, see, he has to be born in Bethlehem. Or he thought, Caesar, that he was gaining something by doing this, that he was doing it on all his free will. The reality is, is God had a plan. God had a purpose. See, that Joseph, who was in Nazareth and Mary, they had to go down to Bethlehem. Now think about that. We'll talk about that more probably next week. But Mary being pregnant. Hey, gang. Some commentators say that she was 13. The oldest, I've read, 17. You get the picture. This young woman experiencing life, really probably going out of Nazareth for the first time. Going down a road that was treacherous. But if you will, if, if you could pull back the curtain, you would see probably a legion of angels around them. As they made their way down. Where Caesar, the greatest man at that time, was ruling the world, calling the shots. Behind the scene was really God, and He was the one calling the shots. That this baby to be born must be born in Bethlehem. Because as you know, it says in Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathrathath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, the ruler, Israel. So a king's word tells the world to move. God says the king will come out of my word. Now, looking at verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And he brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The Son of God was born as a baby in a stable. I want you to think about this. The incarnation that God... God would come to the earth. God would come to the world. How would He come? He would come as a baby. A baby where? Born where? In a stable. The, the, the creator of all things. Of heaven and earth. As a baby. Now, I want you to think about this. He, he tabernacled with us, what it says in John. He... he basically clothed himself in a tent, earthly tent, flesh. But do you remember what Solomon said when he built his temple? His temple which was symbolic for the presence of God? He said this, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less the temple which I have built this earthly box, if I remember right, was 30 feet wide, by third, what was it, 40 feet long, 20 by 30. Think about it, 20 feet by 30 feet. 
and and King Solomon, he made this beautiful temple, and he goes, oh, I know I built this thing, but this is this can't contain you. The heavens of heavens cannot contain you. What more of this earthly box? Now picture this. Again, check the author out. Check the mystery and the wonder of this, that God, the creator of all things, that heaven that heavens cannot contain him, came as a baby. He indwelt a baby. But not just that, that baby was born in a stable. A stinky, smelly stable. Nothing but the author, nothing but God could do this. Poetically, this is a beautiful story. And again, it's for you, it's for me, for a mystery, for a wonder, to always come to this place and pause and wonder that God, that the heavens of heavens cannot contain, came as an earthly baby and was born in a stinky stable. I've been to a lot of farms, guys, and I have to tell you, they don't smell pleasant. Especially when it's the heat of the day in the summertime. I've been to pig farms, and let me tell you, that's bad. I've been to places where there's cattle, and when I'm working in the, far, the rancher's house, the flies are just covering the whole ceiling. And God chose to have His Son born in a stinky, smelly stable. Now, did you notice there was no room for them in the inn? See, some man had no room for him in his inn. The mystery is, is men still have no room for him in their hearts. Poetic picture that he draws is that the heavens cannot contain me, but my son will be born of a virgin in a stable and people still are cold-hearted. Why? Because Scripture says men have no room for them in their own hearts. Why? Son of man that come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Listen. That men... That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. See, God came to a stable, if you will, because the world was stinky. See the picture? It's a stinky world, so He comes to a stinking stable. And men love to stay in their stench. And you know, it's true. You get used to a stench if you're around it enough. Just as the the pig farmer or the rancher, he's used to the smell. I remember the first time I uh, was working close to a field, a cornfield, and they were putting manure down, and it, you know, stunk. And the guy that was in Nebraska, born and raised and worked on a farm, he goes, you know, we call that the smell of money. It's the smell of money. To me, it was the smell of stench. It stunk. But see, God came to this stinky world in a stable and men won't receive Him in their hearts because they love living in their stench. Number eight. Jesus, the earthly father, was a carpenter. And Jesus lies in a feeding trough, more likely made of wood, 
fashioned by a carpenter. You just get that image in your head. You can see there, Joseph is there in the stable. And if I know Joseph, as I know most men during this time, I mean, think about it too. And I can't even imagine this because here's his wife, maybe 14, 13, 14, 15 years old. More than likely, Joseph's in his early 20s. That's just the way they did it back then. Because he's supposed to provide for her and protect her. And he's seeing her in pain and he's probably going, I don't know what to do. He's probably trying to do his best to keep her comfortable, but realizing it's truly out of his hands. And there he's thinking to himself, too, is my child's going to be born in a stable? I mean, what does that say to her? And plus, when the angel came to me and said that this is something of God, that that this is Emmanuel, God with this, why would he choose a stable? And just think about when he's born and they wrap him in swaddling clothes and where to put him? They put him in a feeding trough. More likely made out of wood. A carpenter looking at this rough trough and putting the Son of God, laying him down. But see, again, you, you think this through and what's going to happen is, is that another carpenter fashioned a couple pieces of wood that Jesus would carry to a heel and be hung on. See the imagery? See, the best man can do is give the instrument of death. Whereas God came to give life. Again, it goes back to the mystery and the wonder of this God that we worship. It wasn't by accident that Joseph was a carpenter. Do you ever think about this? That stable wasn't theirs. It was borrowed. It was a borrowed stable. The place that he will be buried is a borrowed tomb. And when Joseph had taken the body wrapped in a clean linen cloth. Does this sound familiar? And laid it laid him in a new tomb which is hewn out of rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and he departed. And see, not only the instrument of death, not only the trough, the instrument of death, but also the place of burial. That's all man can do. No better. Number 10. If we were to drop down, we'd see in verse 15 in chapter 2. And it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they were made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those which were told by them by shepherds. And reading through that, and I know if you've been here long enough, we've touched on this before. See, the shepherds were the ones that got the, if you will, the, the notice from the angels. Hey, 
in a stable, born in Bethlehem, is the Savior of the world. That will bring peace and goodwill towards man with God. Let's see, God bringing peace to the world between Him and humanity. And what He did was, as we've already talked about, is laid His Son into a woman, into a baby, into a stinky stable. And then who does He go tell? Shepherds. And you think that's romantic. The shepherds, because they're over there, they're tending their little lambs, you know. Maybe they got one in their arms going, oh, little lamby, lamby. And so then they won't go to who? The Lamb of God. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. See, the shepherds had to go because they were going to who? The Lamb of God. Lambs that they were overseeing. But see, what makes it also more interesting is that shepherds, if you will, were known as thieves and liars. Not the romanticizing that the world brings to them. No. They were the outcasts of society. They didn't stink, trust them at all. When they came into town, everybody held on to everything they had and nailed it down. Here comes those shepherds. Those thieving lion shepherds. So who's the first witness? The lion thieving shepherds. The lowest society. And they're running through the town saying, He's born! He's born! Who's born? The Messiah! He's in a stable. Come look. If you notice, we have no passages here that everybody said, let's go look. Let's check this out. Why? Because they're going, shepherds are saying this. Where are you hearing this? The shepherds? Oh yeah, right. We can trust them. So, not only have the fact that the shepherds, again, uh, telling about the Lamb of God that was born, but something even more so. See, the first to see His the child after he was born were the lowest society that nobody trusts their witness. Do you know that the first that was revealed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead was the lowest society that they were to witness? And you know who that was? It was women. Do you know that a woman's testimony was not held up in a court of law at this time? But see, that's what God does. He takes the low of society, not necessarily low in His eyes, but the low of society, and He elevates them. And He brings them to be a witness to Him and to who He is. And the woman, again, because of not only the garden, but also just the fact that the structure of them physically was not strong enough to compete with men. Men just smushed them down. But Jesus elevated them. Jesus brought them up into the proper place of society. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. Jesus brought up women into their proper place. And He said, now go tell my disciples. Only God can do these things. If you will, if you'd like, turn to Matthew chapter 2 and we'll look at a few things here. And we're on number 11, folks. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, on the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, 
and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, Where is the Christ to be born? So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the stop appeared. And he went then to, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. Behold, a star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. See, it's interesting because the priests that should have known better, that had the wisdom of God's word, they don't go seek him. Those that were just a couple miles away didn't even bother to check out the story. No, see, God didn't take priests that were near, but God took worldly priests called wise men from afar to seek him. What does that say to you and me? That God opened the door to all mankind. It's not about your knowledge of Him that saves you. It's your desire for Him. It's that He knocked on the door of our hearts and we opened it. It's the realization that I'm in this stable, this stinky world and I desire something more. And I can't get out of it. I can't get out of this stench. And I know it has to do with me. I deserve death. And in the incarnation of Jesus, God Himself comes to this earth and takes my penalty upon Himself and dies on a cross made by man's hands. For my salvation. For my life. And all it means is for me to desire to seek Him. That I want something more than what this pit of the world has to offer. I want what this mysterious but wonderful God that has revealed Himself through His Word and through a baby, through a child, through a man, that He bids me to come. And then when I do come, I realize something. He's been calling my name from eternity past. And all I had to do was just open the door and say, please, come into my stinking stable. And be my Lord and be my Savior. Now I want you to notice something. This does not make Herod very happy. Why? Because then being divinely warned the wise men in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed a different way. Why? Because in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem. And in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which they had been born. Why? Because this king would not have no other king next to him. His throne was to be alone. His throne was to be who he called himself to be, thinking himself to be above humanity. 
I am king. And because of this, think about this. He had all these children from two years old and younger killed. A king declares to kill That's just humanity. But see, the king that he pursued to kill came into the world to save it. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. One king cries out to kill. The true king has come to save. And don't ever lose sight of that. That God is still working in this stinking world. Our hope is not in the rulers of the world because, again, all they know to do is to remove anything that would keep them from achieving their goals. But God has come in the form of this man to bring a new kingdom, one that He will rule in righteousness and justice and truth and in love and in mercy and in grace. This wonderful King that this earthly King tried to snuff out. Now if we were to drop down to 17, look, look actually, yeah, 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken of Jeremiah the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah Lamentations, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Children died. Parents were weeping for the death of these children. Children. See, the enemy always goes for the innocence. The enemy always goes to destroy that which God has deemed as precious in his sight. That's what we see in this world right now. Death to children. Oh, they may not just come out that because we call it uh, medical procedures for women. They're free health for the benefit of themselves. But God doesn't see it that way. Why? Because God is forming something new in that womb. But that's what man does, though. He, he destroys that which can take over anything, whether it be resources or uh, their own pleasures. But God, again, called out to mankind when He came and the children were given Him praise. Listen. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Now, maybe I shouldn't share this, but it is on my heart. This is a wonderful school it really is. But there's something that I've been told more than once. It's very interesting. And I've taught at chapel here for the kids, the elementary. And when the worship is going, uh, they have uh, Mr. Bear, who's just wonderful. But you can just hear the kids sing it. And they're singing with all their hearts. And they're, they're just worshiping God. And, and they just, there is no 
awareness of how embarrassed they are. They're just singing it out. But I'm also told that the upper grades, the high school, they don't sing. They don't sing praises to God because it's too embarrassing. And you know, most adults are the same way. So don't think that bad because not here. I have to say, you guys sing it out. But you know, especially in the culture here in the Midwest, how quietly people are. That they don't sing out. They don't praise God. Well, that's not you guys. I tell you what, there's a lot of adults. They're a little more reserved. It's hard for them to sing out. I don't sing so well. I don't know the song. I'm just too embarrassed. I don't feel like it. Excuses, excuses, excuses. But see, a child doesn't think that. A child just out of the exuberance and the joy and the truth of one's heart belts it out. Where Satan tries to snuff the voices of little ones, God brings them out. That's why it's a great responsibility for you as parents. Teach your children, but also be an example to them. Keep belting it out. Because remember something. In God's eyes, we are all but children. The last thing I want you to bring your attention is just a simple thing. All these earthly children dying. Why? Simply put, because of sinful man. Sin. There's no other phrase to use. There's another. Stroke of the pen to say, right. Children dying just as what's happened in, if you will, Israel, where a child was put in a microwave and they were told that they were praised at the people that did this. Think that through. They're justified because they're oppressed. When has that ever been a reason to kill and to kill children? There's never a reason, never a right reason to kill children. But again, it, if you will, it highlights something. This is mankind, and they want to govern themselves. And see, if you will, this is why God has separated mankind for so long, because He knows what's in the heart of man. And that's why there's always been these separations that men could not join from one part of the globe to the other, because He knows what's in man and the capability of man. Because the more people, the more room to go up. And the more room to go up, the more room for torture or hurt or pain or killing, which brings suffering. Because man, if you will, in this state is true. Evolution has this only right. It is survival of the fittest. They have everything else wrong, but they did get man right. Whatever it takes for me to be above you, I'm for it. Even if I have to cheat, lie, or steal, or kill. 
That's what's in the heart of man. Why? Because every man thinks, okay, I can get up off of the stinky floor in the stable. I can get out of the manure. I can become something. Why do you think the lottery is so popular? People are still thinking, if I get that winning ticket, I'll get out of the stench. I'll be somebody. I can do what I want to do. I can buy what I want to buy. I can be what I want to be. People look at me and admire me, and it's not true. It's been proven over and over and over and over again. It's not the answer to a good, happy life. Because wherever they go, they take themselves with them. But see, you and I are different. Why? Because even though these earthly children die because of sinful man, because of God's Son dying for sinful man, you and I have hope. You and I can come to a Christmas every time, not just on Christmas month, December, but all year round. The amazing thing that God, this great, wonderful God who created everything, who sees the stench of mankind, still came into His stench pulls out. That's why I love Christmas. It's a mystery to me. It's a wonder. It's amazing that this God would do this for you and for me. That God would do this and He knew my name before He even started creation. That just baffles me. It amazes me. See, according to legend, Satan and his demons were having a Christmas party. As the demonic guests were departing, one grinned and said to Satan, Merry Christmas, Your Majesty! At that, Satan replied with a growl, Yes, keep it merry. If they ever get serious about it, we'll be in trouble. What is it? It's a reminder of what? God became a man. But not just any man. He first became a baby. But not just born in a palace. No, born in a stable in the stench of the world. How picturesque that the Lamb of God would come to be among the stables, that the shepherds would come. That He would do it through a woman, a woman that the world would say is cursed. And reminds the world that there's crying children everywhere and God beholds them all. And God takes him up in his arms. That God cares. Or man doesn't care. I finish with a story. Jeffrey T. Bull was a missionary in Tibet. He was cold, exhausted, and hungry. Had been seized by the communists following their takeover of China in 1949. His future was bleak. His captors drove him day and night across frozen mountains until he despaired of life. Late one afternoon, he staggered into a small village where he was given upstairs room to sweep and clean, warmed by a small charcoal brazier. After a meager supper, he was sent downstairs to feed the horses. It was dark and very cold. He clambered down the 
notched tree trunk to find himself in the pitch blackness. His boots squished in the manure and the straw on the floor. He fetid smell of animals was nauseating. The horses sighed wearily, tails drooping, yet the missionary expected to be kicked any moment. Jeffrey was cold, weary, lonely, and ill, and began to feel sorry for himself. Then, as he said, I continue to grope my way into the darkness. It suddenly flashed into my mind, what is today? I thought for a moment, and traveling the days had become a little muddled in my mind. Suddenly it became to me, it's Christmas Eve. I stood there suddenly still in that oriental manger to think that my Savior was born in a place like this. To think that he came all the way from heaven to some wretched eastern stable. What is more to think that he came for me. How men beautifully beautify, excuse me, how men beautify the cross and the crib as if to hide the fact that at birth we resigned him to the stench of beasts and that death exposed him to the shame of rogues. I returned to the warm, clean room when I enjoyed Excuse me. Even as a prisoner, I bowed to thankfulness and I worshipped. Where do you find yourself? Feel like you're in a stench? Going through a hard time? Seem dark right now? Maybe you've, you've lost what you will call the spirit of Christmas. Maybe you feel depressed this time of year because, if you will, this usually is the time that most people do get depressed. Thinking about what they don't have rather than what they do have. May I encourage you this morning? If Christ has you, then you have everything. That his desire for you is to come as a child and worship. Knowing that everything is not done until the author puts the end and closes the book on your life and my life. And then though this page closes and this book closes, a new one opens. For this is nothing but a book of tragedy, hopelessness, and pain, and sorrow, until we have come into the stable, beheld the child, received him into our own hearts, and understood that he came to die from my stench-stained heart. Oh, what a wonderful Savior. I pray that each of us would start beginning today to look at the next few weeks in the eyes and the wonder of God's child. Let's pray. Father, just thank You for the truth that we learned and reminded ourselves this morning. I pray, Father, that each of us would rejoice in the fact that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
And all because that you came to this earth to save a sinner such as I. Such as we. You have given us hope. You have given us meaning. You have given us purpose. You've given us a love that nothing can separate us from. You've given us a peace that the world can never understand. You've given us a joy that is in the heart of our Savior. And in so much more. All just because that you came through a virgin to a baby into a stable onto a cross into a tomb out of the tomb and into our hearts. Thank you. Amen. 